Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is from our Hot Topics series, and we will focus our discussion on the Omicron variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Andrew Nowak to today's episode. Dr. Nowak is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and the Clinical Director of Infectious Diseases at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Dr. Nowak is heavily involved in medical education and serves as the co-director of the Pediatrics Residency Program, as well as the Pediatric Scientist Development Program at his institution. This is an important time to emphasize to our listeners that the information we will discuss today is current as of recording, which is December 17th, 2021. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we have learned that information and evidence evolves over time. As such, the information we discussed during today's episode may be subject to change, and I encourage everyone to stay up to date through vetted resources such as the Academy's COVID-19 Task Force updates or the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Nowak, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today, and welcome to the show. Dave, thanks for the invitation. I am always pleased to be able to join folks and try to educate and talk about what we know uh, this hour about uh, uh, COVID, uh, you know, as the virus continues to teach us humility about what we know and don't know. No, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to come up over and over again throughout our conversation. Uh, you know, before we get into details surrounding Omicron, I'd like to start with some some of your thoughts regarding just, um, you know, pandemics in general. And we know that there are hundreds of viruses that circulate every year, but global pandemics, let alone those lasting two years, are exceptionally rare. So as an infectious disease expert, I'd love to hear your perspective on the SARS-CoV-2 virus and what makes this virus so special. So... You know, Dave, as you described, we are very familiar in infectious disease with pandemics, mostly through influenza, uh, which has been really the main pandemic illness of the of the 20th and 21st centuries that we've had to deal with. You know, we've had lots of media stuff around things like the original SARS and the original MERS and then uh, Ebola, but those those don't even come close because they were very localized outbreaks and they did not spread that aggressively. What has made the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which you will hear me say sometimes that I'll call the virus COVID, which is, you know, from an ID point of view, probably inappropriate, but I slip like everybody else uh, into kind of um, um, imprecise language. What's made it tough is a, a, a bunch of different things. Number one, it's unbelievably infectious. So when you compare it to influenza, even the initial strains, we're somewhere between two to three, three times as infectious as influenza. Um, and the more recent varieties, the Delta virus was probably four to five times as infectious in, as in influenza. And the Omicron variant, um, it looks to be even more. So, you know, what this is, is a virus that is tremendously, tremendously infectious. I will point out, 
still not as infectious as the gold standard of all infectivity, which is measles virus, but it's moving along that chain, unfortunately. And then the other complicating factor I have to tell you that has led to a lot of our problems is the long and variable incubation period for this virus. So when you look at influenza virus, if for example, you were to cough on me, and then I was to say, well, when am I gonna get influenza? That's typically a relatively short period of time. Two or three days is a pretty reliable incubation period. So what that means is that you have a short period of time between exposure and infection. With the SARS coronavirus 2, what we found is that, especially with the early strains of the virus, that that incubation period could be up to 14 days. Mm -hmm. So if you guys remember very early on when we were just learning about the virus, we would send people home for 14 days and lots of, uh, you know, lengthy quarantines for people. And so you had this combination of very infectious, um, including airborne spread, which probably happens with most respiratory viruses, at least a little, but seems to be happening a lot with this respiratory virus, plus a long incubation period. So for example, someone could get on a plane in Paris, having been exposed to the virus and feel fine when they get to the United States a week later. And then three days after that, having seen a ton of people and shed some virus, develop their first clinical symptoms. It's that those two factors together which have made this such a sustainable pandemic. And then the kicker, of course, that makes this an important pandemic. You know, we every year go through pandemics of rhinovirus, right? Mm -hmm. You and I typically probably have a rhinovirus almost every year. They are pandemic around the globe. Like literally hundreds of millions of people get rhinoviruses. The difference between SARS coronavirus too is the dramatic amount of damage it does to the lungs and the huge amount of mortality dependent upon age that it inflicts. And when I say dependent upon age, the older you are, it's the best predictor of, of dying from this infection. The older you are, the more likely you are to suffer severe infection. Yeah, I, I've kind of commented over the last couple of years that if uh, this virus caused some disfiguring rash or <laughs> or some mark that you knew people had it, that you know we wouldn't be where we are today. Um, but do you think sort of the the variability in uh, severity of illness and asymptomatic period and things like that? Do you think that that's been contributing as well? I think so. Yeah. I, you know, I think that um, the variability in the presentation of illness is like most other respiratory viruses. So that mm -hmm. doesn't come up as much, I think, in our discussions, but certainly that makes it challenging for any respiratory virus that you can shed it asymptomatically. Uh, that's, a, that's a very big deal. And, you know, honestly, that's a concept that is generalizable to almost every virus and a few bacteria as well. Asymptomatic shed is, is certainly not that uncommon. Um, the variability in presentation, of course, is something you and I have known since we were medical students. You know, it's very hard to look at a patient and immediately guess with 100% accuracy which virus they have. Mm -hmm. There are certainly some um, clues that we can rely, rely on along the way. You know, influenza tends to give you a little more fever, tends to have a more abrupt onset, more associated with myalgias. But when you hear all the hedging, when I say all of that, you get a sense of how much there is overlap of these kind of like Venn diagrams of presentation of these viruses. So it would be nice if, you know, uh, when you had SARS coronavirus 2 and developed COVID, you know, the, the coronavirus infectious disease that goes with it, um, that you got a giant red sea that popped out of your forehead. But so, so far, that's been rarely reported.
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, can you give us some virology 101 and just walk us through the basic steps of replication and transmission of this particular virus? Sure. So this virus, like uh, almost all of the respiratory viruses, uh, is able to infect a number of different cell types of the respiratory tree. So, you know, you get and, and you can tell how many different cell types it can infect by looking at where people get symptoms with this virus. So some people get regular cold symptoms, you know, runny nose, mild cough, sore throat. So that tells you right off the bat, it can infect the cells of the nose. It can infect the cells of the back of the throat. So then it can also cause people to have a very severe cough, difficulty breathing, and problems with their lungs, you know, moving oxygen in and out. Um, now that speaks to the fact that the virus is also able to infect cells deeper in the respiratory tree along the big airways that we call bronchi, along the smaller air airways that we call bronchioles, and then you know down into the the deeper parts of the lungs in places we call alveoli, where the air gets really exchanged in your lungs. So it's able to infect cells all along those different places. It binds to a common receptor found on those cells, what we call the ACE receptor. And what do you need to know about that? Nothing other than it's called ACE and uh, it's present on your cells. And lots of viruses do that. They are looking for a kind of a, a, a lock that they can fit their key into and turn. And the ACE receptor happens to be a very good lock for the key that is the coronavirus to fit into. Um, and once it binds to that receptor, like almost all viruses, it is brought inside the cell. And when it's brought inside the cell, it's able to disrupt the function of that cell. So it damages the cell. And then in its real plan, it's going to make a ton of other viruses. It uses literally all of the machinery of the cell, all of the resources of energy and metabolism to make a lot of copies of itself and then exit that cell and infect a bunch more cells. So Right off the bat, that's a very efficient strategy for causing airway disease. And what we have found is that it's very, very good at causing that. And then on the flip side, and this is something that drives a lot of, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the business that we see in the hospital and a lot of the business you see in the, in the clinic, what we see is a lot of immune response to infection, causing almost as much damage as the infection itself. So it's a very, very challenging scenario. And I'm not going to get into um, a ton of, you know, depth of the other tissues it infects. It can certainly cause damage to the heart and damage to a number of other organs as well. Um, we do know that it is associated with inflammation of the heart, what we call myocarditis, at, you know, a fairly high rate. So we see a lot of people who get COVID infection have difficulty with heart function that may not just happen during the infection, but for example, um, last after the infection for quite some time. Mm -hmm. oh, so you mentioned how it sort of gets into the body and what it does once it's inside. Uh, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of how does it transmit from that person who's then who's then sick. And I think back to 18 months ago when we when many people were getting their groceries and they were you know spraying them down with Lysol or uh, leaving them outside for three days at a time before they bring them in. So you know, how is this transmitted from one person to the other? So, you know, we've learned a ton and I, I was not a grocery wiper at first, but I was certainly worried about it. Um, you know, what I think we were worried about at first was three big routes of transmission. The first one was this, uh, you know, it gets onto your groceries. 
Yeah, we have a stupid word for that in medicine. It's called fomite, which sounds like a parasite that you would have to treat in one of your patients with eczema, Dave, you know, Um, but it's not. It's just our general term for an object um, that an infection, an infectious disease agent sits on and can be transmitted. So a great example of that is I cough into my hand or I sneeze into my hand and then I shake hands with someone. My hand becomes a fomite. You know, I can pass infectious particles to someone else. Very worried about that at first. And as you guys remember, Clorox did brisk business in terms of selling wipes around the area. As it turns out, probably a very, very, very minor mode of transmission. So we've got a lot of really good scientific data to suggest it's not driven by fomites very much. So feel free to bring your groceries in immediately rather than leaving them out for three days these days. And I think most people have recognized that. The other two routes uh, are two that we had some uncertainty about at first. And so when we talk about how viruses spread, we talk about it by two big routes. One is called droplets. And the easiest way to think about what a droplet is, is think of somebody who sneezes. And when you've seen somebody sneeze, there's droplets that emanate from their mouth. And they typically go three to six feet from that person with a good sneeze if somebody hasn't covered their mouth. So those are big droplets of fluid that have a lot of virus in them. And so droplet transmission is common to almost every respiratory virus we see. It's by far and away the most important route for the majority of respiratory viruses. So droplet transmission is something we didn't need to really study that much. We knew it would be important and we've proved it's important again and again and again. And, you know, that's six, three to six feet. You know, respiratory droplets are big and they fall to the ground quickly. If you wonder where that figure of stay six feet away from people are, you know, all those circles on the floor of your store, you know, near the checkout line, it comes from respiratory droplets. They travel about six feet. So we always assumed that would be the major route of transmission. The big question for a lot of folks from the very beginning, and and this is something we've learned a lot about over time, is what is the role of what we call airborne particles? So whereas you can see a droplet really easily, if you think about somebody sneezing, they'll have lots of big droplets you're like getting out of the, the way of, but you may also notice there's a very, 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 very fine mist that they make too when they sneeze like that. And so that's more airborne particles. Airborne particles like a mist, just think of mist, any fog you see outside floats around, you know? Airborne particles, which are mist-like particles, can go a lot farther than six feet. And so they are both a very important and a very dangerous route of transmission in that they can float farther and they can um, be very, very small and hard to see in the way that a sneeze certainly is not. So we had questions about airborne, how much airborne transmission was there? And you may have read big articles where people say, oh, the government was wrong, or the CDC was wrong, or this doctor was wrong, Dr. Nowak was wrong, and on you know April 22nd at 2 p.m. in 2020, he said he didn't think airborne would be that important. Probably I said that back then. Um, Well, we found out over time that it was pretty important. It's certainly not the only way it's transmitted, and it's probably the less important way if you took all transmission than um, droplet transmission, but it is important. And so that dictates a few things. That's why we are so rigorous about um, people in the hospital setting wearing really good protection against the virus. You see them wearing these really good high filtering masks called N95s to protect them from those airborne droplets. And we're very cautious in the hospital when we have someone who has the infection to make sure there's good ventilation in the room to clear out all those very mist-like particles along the way. So we've learned a ton 
about how it's transmitted that way. And every time you hear someone on Twitter or someone in the news media saying how stupid people were that they ever thought this wasn't airborne, then just, you know, be a little patient. You know, we took a long time to get good science about this. Some of us, myself included, made some assumptions and we were wrong and made some other assumptions we were right. So, you know, we've learned that airborne transmission is important. And that leads me to the last and probably most important piece. What we know about transmitting a virus from your mouth is if when you exhale, sneeze or cough, there is something covering your mouth, a piece of fabric, a piece of, you know, surgical mask, that those particles don't travel in the normal way. They are very limited. They are not like Superman. They don't fly through those things. The vast majority of those particles get caught immediately in those masks and slowed down so that it very much limits the particles going out and transmitting infection, which leads me to a point I'm going to make 375 times today. If everybody is masked around you, everybody is pretty safe around you. Because if you trans, if you're masked, you can't transmit to them efficiently at all. If they're masked, they can't transmit to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, am I correct to assume that as an infectious disease specialist, you've seen the movie Contagion? Yes. Okay. Is that a standard part of your your training, or is that just uh, more of an interest of yours? Well, I, I let me share. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of of Steven Soderbergh. I have uh -huh. loved his movies since Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, and uh, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. So when I found out he was making a movie about infectious disease, I was very excited. And so uh -huh. I saw it in the theaters. <clears throat> and I have to say, you know, it's rare the movies where someone says the word fomite, which they did in that movie. <laughs> um, and it's rare that they, they did a, a fairly evidence-based, reasonably smart take on how a global pandemic made happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I've seen the movie Contagion. Okay, well, I'll, as you know, then uh, better than most, I'm sure they also use the term "are not" quite mm -hmm. a bit in that movie. Uh, so, how would you explain "are not" to somebody who lacks a medical background, and why is this important when it comes to uh, the COVID pandemic? Yeah, the, the the difficulty is that they'll talk about "are not," but they'll also use synonyms for it. They'll say mm. the reproductive factor, the reproductive number, and you'll hear lots of different surrogates for this. So. Just think of R naught as a ruler, and it is the ruler of how easily a virus transmits to other people. I, I think of R naught as just a very simple ruler. And, you know, we got lots of rulers out there. You know, if you go to a Mexican restaurant and you're having something spicy and they offer you a, a pear mm -hmm. or a pepper on a Scoville scale, you can look that up. That's a ruler for heat. Um, you know, there's lots of rulers out there, and this is a ruler for infectivity. So we have lots of good examples. For example, uh, a great uh, a great um, um, way to think about it is uh, influenza in a, in a typical year has got an R naught between one and two, because typically if you have flu in an average setting, you may infect one or two other people. Mm -hmm. And so if you if you're not good at math, let me explain this really quickly. If you have an R naught of one. I get sick, I can infect one other person. That means disease is going to spread fairly slowly and going to be very limited. If you have an R naught of less than one, for example, Ebola, unless you're trying really hard, Ebola has a fairly low R naught. It sometimes is below one. That's why Ebola outbreaks tend to die out very quickly because it can be challenging to transmit one person to another. Uh, I already mentioned earlier that this is more 
contagious than flu. And so the early R naughts for this were two or three. And mm -hmm. so that means that if I was infected, I could infect two or three people. And the more recent R naughts for the Delta variant have been around four or five, which means that if I'm infected, I could infect four or five people. And now the Omicron variant, the assumed R naught is higher than Delta mm -hmm. based on the data we have today. So that means what we have is a virus that, you know, if I'm infected, I infect six people or seven people. So what the R naught tells you is the higher the R naught, the more infectious and contagious something is. And that's really um, a, a great way to understand it along the way. Okay. I think it's a great explanation. And then uh, just for comparison purposes, what's the R naught of, say, measles? 15. Mm. So when I still say that um, measles is the grand champion, uh, there's almost nothing that's as contagious as measles. You know, some of the other uh, big granddaddies of contagiousness, things like varicella, which we also call chickenpox and smallpox, the pox viruses were very contagious as that way as well. And the very contagious viruses like um, SARS coronavirus 2 do almost always tend to have an airborne component to them. That mm -hmm. airborne spread is a really good way to jack up your contagiousness factor, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. Now, well, we started off by talking about, uh, you know, how infection is spread and, and replication inside the body. But how do mutations typically occur with viruses? Is, is this a natural and expected part of their existence? Or, uh, are we, or should we believe these conspiracies that we read that the vaccines have caused mutations? Tell us a little more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, 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 don't, we don't have nearly enough time to get into the conspiracy. <laughs> things. So, you know, viruses, just to, to explain what viruses are, you know, human beings, just to give you a quick primer, we are very large creatures, right? <clears throat> we have, a, a you know, literally not just millions, but billions and, and billions of cells in our body. So we're made up of all these building blocks called cells. And, you know, a cell is kind of what Dave and I in medical school, you know, we learned as the basic building block of, of uh, life. You know, uh, if you have a cell, it's kind of that, that uh, base unit and the cell will typically contain a lot of machinery, you know, a lot of things to provide energy for the cell, to build new parts of the cell. And importantly, we know that humans have in each cell a nucleus and then the nucleus is the genetic information. You know, it's the ability of the cell to make more of itself. It's the blueprints, you know, for new cells along the way and for the proteins that are made in the cell. So that's an important concept for us in that we are these huge amounts of machinery with which DNA is part of it and, and genetic information, we'll call it. So viruses, very interestingly, um, are made up only of the genetic information and just a little bit more structure. So they are very typically so much more small than just uh, uh, an average cell. They are really barely put together to have a little bit of nucleic acid, that is the genetic information, maybe a few proteins, maybe there's a little bit of fat, you know, coated around that, and that's it. So viruses are very tiny and, you know, very little other machinery there. And so the reason I'm giving you a biology lesson, and you're all probably asleep by now, I apologize, <clears throat> but there's a point to this. So in a human being, we have all these cells. We're really invested in making sure that that blueprint is a good blueprint and it doesn't get screwed up in an individual cell. So you would be flabbergasted about the amount of machinery in your body that simply exists to keep the blueprint clean 
to make sure that mutations don't get introduced into it very easily. And if they are, if there's a random break and something goes wrong, there's machinery to literally fix that mutation immediately and get rid of it. So, you know, it's one of the reasons that human beings are uh, relatively resistant to changes in the germline. It's one of the reasons that radiation, for example, or chemotherapy or agents like that, that do cause breaks and stuff in DNA can be so powerful in terms of harming human beings, you know? So we have all these protection systems. Viruses, typically almost none. Uh, They're totally open to this. Because when you think about it, if I'm a virus and I had a strategy, I'd want to mutate a lot. I'd want to change how I look. I want to change the way my DNA looks. A lot of the time, it won't work and I will be mm-hmm. non-viable. But remember that that virus that I talked about a while back that infected a cell in your, in your lung made a ton of other viruses. Okay, so remember that. Well, when it does that, it has a chance for mutations in all those other viruses. Let's say it makes a million new viruses in one of our cells and 999,999 of them are terrible. And so those mutations make non-viable virus. Well, still got a viable virus there, and it may have a mutation that helps it to be more fit. So we know that viruses are built to mutate. It's just part of the way that their, their genetic code is put together. So we expect viruses to change and mutate over time. We see this all the time. We see this in influenza viruses every year. That's why we have to change the flu shot every year. Influenza viruses mutate and change over time. And then there's a few areas around human beings where viruses are very good at being hypermutable or they change all the time. And that's typically when we've seen patients, for example, who are very immune compromised with SARS coronavirus 2, when they get it, they often will have the virus in them, not just for days or a couple of weeks like we do, but for months. Mm-hmm. And the virus is constantly making new viruses, constantly trying new mutations out. And so we think a lot of the, the more concerning variants have actually arisen from people who are immune compromised because of the consistent uh, mutations that are introduced in those people. Yeah, I, and I, I like that word variants because I think that's important and leads me to my next question of we've, we've heard about these variants of concern over the past year or so. And as you mentioned, all these mutations that sort of never came to pass, we just never even know about. Um, but the ones that do come about and they are designated as variants of concern, only a few of them really have seen to be relevant uh, and more for long-term uh, problematic reasons and things like that. So what happened to the variants that didn't take hold? Uh, you know, did they just not pan out in regards to they were identified and just didn't increase transmissibility or severity or tell us a little bit more? So, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, a, a few weeks ago when the first reports of Omicron came up, I had a couple of people around me say, oh, my gosh, I'm reading all this news about Omicron. I'm so terribly worried. And I seemed very blasé. And they were like, well, why aren't you worried? And I just said, because I don't, I, we just don't know. And what I reflected on is if you go to the CDC website, you'll see a list of an amazingly long list of variants that we've been through and the WHO as well. I mean, let's think of it this way. You know, they started giving Greek letters just to make life more interesting to all of these variants along the way. And, you know, the first big variant out there, which was identified in 2020, was the alpha variant in the, in the United Kingdom. So A is for alpha, so that fits with the alphabet. So Omicron, O, so that's a lot of letters. We've gone through a lot of variants. And you know what? The majority of them, we never saw much of them. I mean, there were definitely um, variants from Brazil and other places that we had a lot of concern about, and they just didn't pan out. 
one of the big things that drives a variant, whether we're going to whether we're going to see it at all, um, is very simply this: you know, is it contagious? More contagious than what was there before. So, uh, for example, we had a mixture of variants in the United States because the Alpha variant and the Brazilian variant, a number of those guys, they were they had very similar R-naughts, very similar contagiousness. So they would kind of flow, flow in one area and surge in another area, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Delta variant came in, in the, the spring of this year. Uh, it was like, I think, uh, probably April, May, when we started to see Delta. And if you look at the CDC's excellent chart, because they give great data on this, it just wiped out all the other variants, wiped mm. out every other strain that was circulating, just got rid of them all, and there was all Delta. 99.99% Delta. And it took over very quickly. And a lot of folks said to me, well, how did it do that? And I'm like, it's just, it's more contagious. So if mm -hmm. it's more contagious, it's going to get better at infecting more people than the other variant that was around. And so Delta have had the longest run of any variant in our country by far in that it, it was the only variant we saw in it with any significance for seven or eight months. I mean, it was, um, it's remarkable how long it's driven that. And it's driven all the misery we saw this summer and this fall. You know, it's very contagious to put a lot of people in the hospital. It has killed adults and it has killed children, you know, probably 500 of them just through Delta alone. Um, so now Omicron is coming. What do we know about Omicron? In places around the globe where there's Delta, Omicron seems to be replacing it in a number of those places. So what do I expect? I expect based on that, um, I can't say for sure, because I can't say anything for sure. But based on that, I expect that we're going to get a big wave of Omicron. If it's more contagious, that is, has a higher R-naught than Delta, then we're going to see a wave of Omicron. There's no two ways about that. Vaccines will help, as we'll get to. Um, and being cautious, masking and doing things like that um, will help. But uh, we're, we're probably going to see it. If you look at the CDC data in the last couple of weeks, We've gone from seeing about 0 0.2, 0.3% Omicron to about 3%. So that's mm -hmm. about a 10% increase or a, a tenfold increase in just a couple of weeks. What that tells me is we're going to see a lot more Omicron. And might it become the dominant strain in the United States? It might. Okay. Well, let's move to that. So uh, in regards to Omicron, uh, it, it's amazing how the mutations have been identified. But tell us about how these mutations differ compared with prior variants of concern. What's so special about this uh, variation? So now you're edging into territory that's going to make the virologists listening to, listening to this horrified because I am <laughs> not a virologist. I'm much more of a bacteriologist. And so I, yeah, I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So <laughs> that will help. Um, uh, but, you know, the, you don't need to be a hardcore virologist to understand what happened with all of these variants, you know, and this gets a little bit to something I mentioned already. So we talked about lock and key, right? You know, mm -hmm. on cells in your body, there are locks um, and, you know, viruses can, if they fit in perfectly, they're a key that fits in perfectly. They can kind of unlock that, that cell. So um, that key is literally the key. Um, you know, so the, the structure of that key, the way it's put together, um, the folds of it and the crinkles in it are what allows it to fit better or worse into the lock. And so what we have seen when we see these jumps in infection, what we most typically see is changes in 
how that key is put together, making it fit in the lock even better. So that's mm -hmm. the big difference, for example, between the alpha strain from the UK and the Delta variant. So the key for the Delta variant fit better. And so it was able to outcompete. So now we're looking at Omicron and Omicron has changes in the way that key looks that seem to fit in again, even better. So it binds more tightly and fit even better that facilitates it. There is also a little bit of data, although this is so preliminary, that says that when the virus infects a cell, it makes more viruses mm. than uh, it would if it were the Delta variant. So there's what we call a higher multiplication or, or MOI. Um, I, I don't know how much that contributes. I do know that every time we've seen a virus change that key significantly to make it fit much better, we've seen a jump up in, in the r not. I think that's probably the main contributor to what we're seeing with Omicron. Mm -hmm. And uh, for point of clarification, the key that you eloquently described, is that the spike protein that everybody talks about? Yeah. So let's jump into some some viral biology. So, you know, it's a spike protein. And, and what it, it is, is really just viruses tend to be roughly, and again, virologists don't hate me, they tend mm -hmm. to be roughly spherical in, you know, in nature. And a spike protein is literally that. It's a spike sticking out of the sphere. So as if you had you know, driven a nail into a you know, basketball, it would just stick out of it, stick out. And so those, those spikes stick out and they kind of are able to bind to things in the environment. And they can bind to the ACE receptor, which is this, the key on the cell, and bind to it very tightly and get that virus to be kind of taken up into the cell. Okay. Now, we know that South Africa was the first country to report the Omicron variant, but it also appears that it likely originated elsewhere. So how does testing differ in South Africa compared with other countries? And what type of surveillance is necessary to find these new mutations when they occur? So um, it's made me very sad how South Africa has been treated with this because they really do have a superb uh, monitoring system in the country. They do a lot of testing they report to one uh, national laboratory for looking at the viruses, and they do a lot of what we call sequencing. And so sequencing, very simply put, is just figuring out exactly what the genetic code of something looks like. And so when we look at all the genetic code, we can very quickly determine what genetic code is similar to what's already there, like the Delta variant, and what genetic code may be new and therefore be a new variant of the virus like Omicron. Um, every country does it differently. You know, the WHO assembles all the data together, but every country does it differently. In the United States, the CDC does some sequencing, but a lot of regional labs do some. There are individual universities and medical schools that do a ton. We are, as always, when it comes to health, much more chaotic than the rest of the world and how we're organized that way. So, you know, as soon as someone said to me, the, you know, the South Africa has this Omicron variant, I said very confidently, going back to that incubation period thing I had mentioned before, it's, it, well, then it's everywhere else, because it always is. We've never been able to find a variant so far that when we identified it in one country that we were not able to identify it in, in other countries around the globe. So, um, you know, I think that that's the rule of this pandemic. And it makes sense. You know, we have planes and we have cars, and we have boats, 
and people move around. And planes, in fact, allow us to move around in a matter of hours to go across the globe. So the virus loves that. It means that you can transport people with Omicron who may not even know that they have it across the globe to start another little hotspot wherever they're going. It's probably one of the biggest challenges for current infectious disease is the mobility of human beings around our globe. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned how they sequence it to find differences in the genetic material, but once they... Uh, a, a genetic uh, variant of concern is identified, such as Omicron. How do scientists learn more about how this behaves? Are there uh, tools like statistical modeling that they use? Uh, do they can they find out information in the lab? Do they take a bunch of humans that are infected with Omicron and then you know uh, isolate them and run a bunch of tests on them? Uh, how do we gain this information? Well, <clears throat> some of it is in the laboratory. You know, there there are so many different studies going on right now. So there are people who are looking at, for example, um, how Omicron but yeah, you know, what it's what that key, what its spike protein looks like, and how well it binds to different kinds of cells in the laboratory. Always very useful to describe in a petri dish how the virus functions. We also have pe people in different parts of labs looking at antibodies. You know, our our defense against uh, against infections. How well antibodies from various waves of the pandemic, including in unvaccinated, infected, and vaccinated people do against the variants. So that's another active set of experiments. You know, the hard part really, I have to tell you, is gathering the data to figure out things like the r naught and gathering data to figure out um, the severity because there are lots of different things that might confound our ability to say, I know exactly what this is. For example, let's say you and I decided um, to uh, say, uh, we have someone in um, Columbus who has Omicron. We've just met them. So the best way for us to figure out the R not would be, okay, person in Columbus, um, we are going to, we know you have Omicron. Please don't mask. Please walk mm -hmm. around. Make sure you interact with people who don't mask. Um, and tell us every single person you interact with in the next 14 days. And every time you interact with any human being and you're near enough to them, hand them a testing kit and then have them test so that after 14 days, we can look at how many people you spread Omicron to. So that's not going to happen because that's insane. <laughs> um, but we have to try to approximate that. We do that in a bunch of different ways. We look at case numbers in a community and then the rise in case numbers. You know, a number of countries will report basically when they look at cases rising week to week, what a what they call a relative are not. The South Africans are great at this, actually. They report kind of the estimated r not of the virus at any given time. And obviously that's affected by if everybody's masking or if everybody's staying away from each other at times. Um, but we kind of determine it that way. And then severity is a little easier because certainly how often does an infected person admitted to the hospital die of Omicron? Easy, because we know almost everybody who's admitted to hospitals and how often they die. But how many People who have Omicron get admitted to the hospital. Easy, maybe, but there's a lot of people with mild cases. Should we test them? So it gets really, really challenging. And so it's very easy to say in Petri dishes how viruses act and how antibodies bind. Um, but we need really good dedication to what we call clinical research to really figure out the r not, figure out the impact on severity, and then importantly, to figure out how vaccines, which we looked at in a Petri dish, are going to protect when you put them in the real world and people are exposed to infection. Mm -hmm.
Now, in the traditional model, especially with clinical research, I mean, this takes months to years because you have to, you know, design the study and then get approval from your institution, IRB, and then you have to either recruit subjects or go to the lab and study it. And then you have to write everything up, submit it for peer review, which takes another couple of weeks. And then, you know, it gets accepted by a peer reviewed publication. And then the world can read your, your findings and, and they can then judge your methodology and results and conclusions and things like that. But uh, in today's world, it seems like we're seeing all of this preprint data or, uh, you know, non-peer-reviewed uh, data that's being published and then spread like wildfire on social media. So uh, just wondering your perspective on how, how can we interpret that? What can we believe? What can't we believe? And how should we use all of this? Because obviously in a global pandemic, we need information a lot faster than the traditional scientific model allows. So it has been an interesting time for us as, as uh, physicians because the need for speed here has been very acute in trying to do this. And as a result, we have relaxed some of those rules. Um, some There's been some innovation and I will give a shout out to um, my own institution, the University of Pittsburgh. They've come up with ways of doing multiple clinical trials at the same time um, and examining multiple outcomes in a very innovative study called the REMAP trial. Um, but we've also been forced to rely on things that previously we wouldn't have taken as seriously. As you said, preprint. So normally, as you said, you know, I want to publish a paper, <clears throat> I write it, I submit it. Uh, lots of people at a journal review it, say whether it's good or bad, send it back to me. I do some more experiments, I make some changes, I send it in again, ideally it gets accepted. Um, these days, in order to get early data on studies that were not published, we now are in the era of what, Dave, you refer to as the preprint. That is, mm -hmm. I submitted a paper and now I put a copy of what I submitted up on a website for people to read. So this is both great and at the same time, terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so it's great because we have early access to, inter, uh, to information before it has to go through peer review. And sometimes that information can be really provocative and, and critical in terms of us helping to understand something. However, scientific peer review is important. It often picks up on subtleties of a study that may invalidate it or, or biases in the authors that they should have recognized. Um, and, you know, I'll bring up good old hydroxychloroquine as an example. Mm -hmm. So hydroxychloroquine went out there early on, and there were a few papers in March and April of last year, and they were very provocative saying, boy, it had this effect. They were not very well-designed papers, and they were preprints, but they were out there. Um, and some fairly legitimate people I knew said, well, it could work, maybe. Um, and, you know, then it became wildfire, and then it's in mm -hmm. the media, and everybody wants to get it. And, we can't get it for the patients who need it, for example. Uh, but then a number of very well-designed clinical trials went into effect. And in what was pretty record time for those trials in three to six months was really clear. Hydroxychloroquine didn't work. Um, and all that hysteria was for naught because the well-designed trials said there's no effect here. And in fact, there's more harm than there is good. Um, so we have struggled with that in that there have been some things would have come up that seemed like they would be great. Another uh, example is what we call convalescent plasma. So convalescent plasma means taking the antibodies of somebody who was infected with COVID and giving them to someone who's just gotten infected. That sounds great, right? You give antibodies to people all the time to supplement them. You give them other people's antibodies to protect them, right? You give IVIG. Mm -hmm. That should work. It seemed like such a great idea. <clears throat> I thought, boy, that sounds pretty good. Didn't work. It really didn't work. And, you know, when you take a step back now, we know a few things. We know, number one, that the site of infection in these patients is the lung. 
And that when we give that plasma, it doesn't go into the lung, it stays in the bloodstream. So there's limited exposure of the most important site in the body to those antibodies. Okay, so that makes a little more sense. And then we have these data more recently that when you have infection with COVID, your, your protection degrades over time. And so past infection is actually not nearly as good as having been vaccinated. And that, that figure is staggering. I mean, it's like six to seven fold for, for Delta protection against getting infected and hospitalized and 14 to 15 fold against dying from COVID. So it is so much better to have been vaccinated than infected. So now we have information a year and a half later that explains a lot of what we saw, that the convalescent plasma wouldn't have worked. We just had to go through the process to figure that out through research. And that's why it's so important for us to continue to set up these really good trials and to go through peer review and to do those things. Even as you and I read preprints all the time to say, this may be something, but mm -hmm. I want to see more evidence about it. Yeah. And, you know, with science, as you know, as well as anybody, we have to allow ourselves the opportunity to change our minds uh, as the evidence accumulates and evolves. Sometimes it contradicts itself. Science is messy. Uh, science is slow, but it is objective when done correctly. Uh, so I appreciate your perspective on that. Now, I just want to remind our listeners as we get into some other thoughts on Omicron that our conversation right now is taking place on December 17th, 2021. Um, so everything we talk about in the next couple of minutes may be obsolete by the time this is published. I don't know. <laughs> but Dr. Nowak, what have we learned thus far in regards to how Omicron is behaving in general? Do we know if it's more easily transmitted or causing more severe disease? Or is it, you know, have we learned nothing at all yet? Well, <clears throat> we've learned humility, number one, because uh -huh. yet again, you know, something really um, came out of left field and and, um, and and it's not a shock anymore when we see a new variant, but the, the speed with which these move is still impressive. Um, and much as we felt like in June that we had a handle on this and then Delta rolled through and now we have Omicron coming through. I, I, I so agree with you. Our our discussion is valid for about 24 hours, <laughs> maybe. Um, what do we know? We don't know anything for sure. Honestly, we're still trying to get good studies, but the majority of the study data we've seen so far suggests that Omicron is more contagious than Delta. Um, and that some of that is inferential. You know, you have an area where there are primarily Delta variant cases, and then we see a wave of Omicron cases replace them. There are there is more than one explanation for that than it's Omicron is more contagious. Um, it could be that Omicron is preferentially picking off the unvaccinated, for example. Yeah. But the best explanation, the most likely explanation to prove the facts or to explain the facts that we have in front of us, which is called a hypothesis, is that Omicron is more contagious. Exactly how much, I don't know. I just know it's more contagious. It's probably not measles, but it's more contagious than Delta, which was more contagious than Alpha which was more contagious than the original strain. So I, I think I can say with some comfort, it's more contagious. I can say with great hesitation that there is a suggestion that it is less severe. And let me explain why I say that. We don't have any good data that is very well controlled data, but what we do have are hospitals in South Africa, which is in the midst of an incredible surge of Omicron patients. The, there's a huge surge of patients in the community, but there is not the same severe surge of hospitalized and dying patients that they saw with the big Delta surge in their country. 
So that you would say, well, Dr. Nog, that sounds like there's no, that's a no brainer. I mean, mm -hmm. Omicron is less severe. Well, the problem is a lot of people have been vaccinated in South Africa, far fewer than in many other countries, actually, interestingly, but there's a lot of vaccinated people. So you can come up with a perfectly reasonable hypothesis that Omicron is just as severe. It's just the vaccinated people, especially the boosted ones, are getting less severe disease. And so they're bringing it down artificially. So that's still something that I'm not comfortable saying. I know Omicron is less severe. But we have a, a, a number of pieces of data from laboratory data to strongly suggest that um, Omicron is definitely less severe and you get some protection against infection in general with good vaccination plus boosting. And that is data both from Pfizer, which re released some data um, recently about how well the antibody responses match up with Omicron and a couple of other independent laboratories, not just at Pfizer. And then I would say a little bit, if you look around the United States, Omicron is not moving quite as quickly as we've seen in other countries. And we do have a lot of vaccinated and boosted people in the United States. So that's a good explanation for the fact that vaccine and boosting, I, I feel pretty good, are going to give you some good protection against Omicron. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I look forward to listening to this in about three weeks and uh, then I'll shoot you an email and tell you how wrong you were. <laughs> and that and $5 will get you a meal at a fast food joint. Yeah. <laughs> they, they take, take everything with a grain of salt. I've been wrong so much before. I feel pretty confident it's more contagious though. I think those data are really, you know, you know, important. Okay. Absolutely. There's another hot term we've talked about some other ones like r naught and others uh, is uh, this term neutralizing antibodies um and it seems like that only really tells us part of the story but can you describe what type of immune response occurs after both infection and or vaccination and is it all about the antibodies or are there other important parts that we need to be talking about so yeah yeah mostly you hear in the press about antibodies because antibodies are what uh are the easiest thing to measure after someone gets vaccinated. So antibodies are, you know, parts of your immune system in your bloodstream. And <clears throat> what they do very, very simply put is they simply stick to foreign invaders. Um, you know, if you've been immunized against measles and a measles particle comes into your bloodstream, antibodies will stick to it. And remember, we talked about the lock and key, right? If it's something stuck to the key, it can't fit in the lock. So antibodies stick to things. And when you get an antibody that sticks to that key thing, like the spike protein, it literally, quote, neutralizes, unquote, it keeps it from doing anything. It keeps it from going through its infectious cycle. We love neutralizing antibody because that is the best thing that you can get out of a vaccine. And so a lot of the studies you'll see in the press in the next few weeks are going to be about neutralizing antibody from vaccines and boosters and how well that protects against Omicron. And I think that's important because that data is heartening to me from what I've seen so far. It's preliminary, of course, but it's heartening that we may get some good protection from two doses of mRNA and boost against Omicron infection. One thing that never gets talked about in the press very often, because it's a lot harder to talk about, is that that's not the only way we defend against viruses. So our immune system has way more components to it than just antibody. And one of the most important components in defending against viruses is also some cells of your body. And so there are cells in your body that we, uh, we call white blood cells that are dedicated to defending you against um, infection. 
uh, they are really your primary line of defense as you learn to, you know, um, defend yourself against infections. There's lots of different kinds of white blood cells, but there are virus fighting white blood cells. We call them lymphocytes. Um, in particular, a class of lymphocyte called T lymphocytes, um, because they, you know, they originated in early days of studying the immune system from the thymus, and they are thymic lymphocytes. So these T lymphocytes are virus fighting cells. That's their profession. I will tell you, they're much harder to measure the number, function, and identity of than any antibody. <clears throat> Very easy for Dave and I to order, right, Dave, a, a titer against of any antibody. So mm -hmm. how many, how many IgA antibodies are there? There's 85, you know. How many antibodies do you have against tetanus? Well, 3.4, you know. <laughs> we have these really fine tests for that. If I would say to Dave, where's your test for anti-tetanus lymphocytes? Dave would say, ah because we don't have good tools for that. And yet we know they're critical to defense. So one thing I think we are all suspicious of is that even vaccination that doesn't work so well against Omicron, that's more in the past, probably did prime some of those virus fighting cells, those T lymphocytes, to give you some protection there too. We still, a year and a half in, haven't figured out how much contribution there is from the T lymphocytes, but it's not zero. And so that's another part of the immunization process that probably gives you some long-lived protection. Well, a year and a half in, why have we yet to develop a really good uh, antibody test for COVID? Uh, why can't we just test somebody's blood and say, yep, you're immune to it? Or, you know, do we have a, a threshold or a level or, you know, what's going on with that? So I think we've got, we're really good at developing tests that are going to be in high demand, right? So we have definitely a, I had COVID or vaccination at some point in my life test, the SARS-CoV-2 test, you know, um, which tells us that you were either vaccinated or you were infected at some point. Not perfect, but it's good. Um, I think one of the reasons we don't have <clears throat> a ton of other really good tests that are fine discrimination of the antibodies like you, like you described is that there's not as much interest in them. And right now we're really focused on producing massive amounts of a test that would be very useful for everybody at the same time. Then a lot of the other stuff is still in research laboratories. You know, there's individual laboratories around the world with amazing ability to talk about T cell immunity, you know, different kinds of antibodies, grading and figuring out antibodies that look like someone was vaccinated versus infected. That's great. But a lot of those products aren't going to market because right now we just need tons of tests. You know, if you were to say, what do you need in the United States right now? We don't even need antibody tests. We need tests for whether you're infected from your nose for everybody, you know, and, and we just, we literally have had so many infections. We, we don't have enough capacity to make enough tests. It's mm -hmm. very, very frustrating where we are in terms of getting some of the tools that we need to fight this, uh, fight this pandemic. We're still behind in some cases. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if somebody were to test their antibodies uh, for COVID and they say, oh, yeah, see, I was infected before, is that number going to stay the same or is that going to you know, change over time? Um, it's going to change over time, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's going to change over time would be my, my guess about that for today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Today. Yeah. Uh, now, you, you touched upon this just a minute ago, but do we have any idea yet if our current COVID vaccines are protective against the Omicron variant? We don't have very well controlled studies, but all of the data from laboratory studies so far has been very reassuring that there does seem to be pretty good activity of those antibodies against Omicron for people who've been boosted. You know, people who got one dose of vaccine or two doses of vaccine, not as much. And people who are previously infected, it's lousy protection. 
but people who are uh, fully boosted seem to, to demonstrate pretty good antibody responses against the virus. So I think it's a really good reason if you've received only one or two doses of vaccine right now to finish up your series and get that booster. It's going to help you a lot. Okay. And I'm sure you've practiced this elevator speech, oh, maybe a thousand times in the last year and a half, but can you just explain to us how mRNA vaccines work to produce an immune response? Sure. We talked about genetic code earlier, and, and mRNA is a genetic code, just a tiny piece of genetic code that only um, convinces the body to make a part of the um, the virus called the spike protein, which we've talked about. The key thing to know about mRNA is it's called mRNA and not mDNA. So it doesn't go into your DNA. It can't even get into the nucleus. You know, it just goes in the cell briefly when it's injected into your body, convinces some of your body's cells to make some spike protein. And then all of a sudden, the immune system, which has been riled up by the fact that somebody put a needle in your arm, goes in there and finds all of these cells that have spike protein on it. And it learns to defend against spike protein from just those few copies that are made after your vaccination and produces a rich antibody response. And there's probably some T lymphocytes as well. So, you know, the key things to know about it is it's a newer technology for mass implementation, but we've had mRNA vaccines in development for 30 years. So when this was developed, I mean, uh, we've been waiting for an mRNA vaccine to come on market for 15 years. I mean, it's been in commercial production and a lot of people have been trying to market vaccines with this for a long time. There were actually functional MERS and uh, SARS vaccines already made um, using this platform, um, you know, 10 and 15 years ago. So this is not a new technology. When people are like, oh, it's brand new and untested. I'm like, oh, it's been around since REM was my favorite band. Holy moly, you know, <laughs> and, and it works really well. And, you know, the toxicity is it promotes a strong immune response because you want it to. And a lot of people get some soreness and maybe some fever and feel lousy, but then it provokes a really good immune response. And then mRNA, because it can't get into the nucleus and it's not a DNA molecule, it's an RNA molecule, which only can make a, this one protein. It degrades over a period of days and then it's completely gone from your body. Real nifty way of producing a vaccine response. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, are vaccine manufacturers capable of tweaking that mRNA to match you know, new variants as they emerge, especially if there's mutations in the spike protein? Absolutely, they are. And I think that's one of the exciting things that we hope to see, that they're going to keep tweaking it along the way. <clears throat> and then, you know, we're going to see some more specific mRNA variants come up along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just a few days ago on December 14th, we celebrated the one-year anniversary of the first COVID vaccine being administered to the general public in the United States and then across the world as well. Um, and since then, there have been over 8 billion vaccine doses given worldwide, but we continue to see severe illness and death from COVID. So what message do you have to those who remain hesitant to receive these widely available vaccines? Um, number one, I think these vaccines save lives, um, period. They have saved, I would estimate, <clears throat> millions of lives worldwide. Um, and they will not only save your own life, they will save the life of your loved ones, including the life of your child. I think that everybody who's listening to this podcast with a child would do anything they could to protect them from something bad. And so what we have seen in the United States is a thousand children dead at, at minimum. And we don't know because of reporting if that number is even much higher. A thousand children dead in the United States from COVID. So this has killed a thousand children and it's killed, as we well know, hundreds of thousands of Americans closing in on a million pretty soon. So this is a tragedy of, of epic proportions. 
you know, this is how you show love to your family. So you show love to your community. You know, many of us are proud of our communities and want to support them in any way we can. We give to food drives and we give to the local fire department because we appreciate them putting their lives on the line for us. And we, you know, cheer on our healthcare workers putting their lives on the line. Well, this is a great way to show that love for community, love for your family, and honestly, care for yourself to get this vaccine. It's safe, it's effective, and it will save your life very frequently. Oh, thank you for that sharing that powerful message. And as we wrap up here, and you, you're, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's extremely informative. I'd like to ask one last question. I'm not going to hold you to this, uh, but if we can dust off your crystal ball, and if I were to ask you, you know, to predict uh, what the coming year will hold in regards to the pandemic, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, you know, uh, as I said, I've been humbled so many times. I'm almost loath to make predictions, but I think we're going to see a big wave of Omicron. I think we're going to see boosters that are specific to Omicron probably uh, mid to late next year. Um, and I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to get better with treatments plus vaccine to decrease the death rate, decrease the death rates for this so that next year around this time, we won't be seeing the terrible case numbers we're seeing now. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> well, Dr. Nowak. Yeah, Dr. Nowak, uh, this has really been an extremely informative discussion. I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to address these important questions. And before we depart, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? I would just say go get vaccinated. That is the way that we get out of this. Uh, it, it is safe. It is effective. It saves lives. Um, and then secondly, wear a mask a little more in the coming wave of Omicron. Uh, if everybody around you is masked, you're 100% safe. We know that from multiple studies. You know, be be understanding of the fact that, you know, if you yourself aren't worried about COVID, you could hurt somebody else or potentially cause their death by spreading COVID to them. So be kind and wear a mask. It's not a political statement. It's a way of, of caring for your fellow human beings. Well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.